This is Dr. Tribby Lake with the Glial Goddess Podcast, and today I brought on a well-respected psychiatrist by the name of Devin Choquist to have a delicious discussion, a delicious or delightful discussion, about the impact of addiction on our intimate connections. This question of can someone who is recovering from an addiction have a successful intimate relationship? I'm going to dive into some really interesting questions from his experience, what he's seen in clinical practice about what is addiction? How do we distinguish that? Is it a choice? What kind of environmental pressures affect or have an effect on addiction? I'm excited to have him here today. So we are going to be discussing many of these questions. A couple statistics from the National Center of Drug Abuse statistics. I was pretty blown away that among Americans aged 12 years and older, 31.9 million are current illegal drug users within the last 30 days. So we are gravitating to mind-altering substances. We've all been there. A lot of us have tried them. It's a risky thing. If alcohol and tobacco are included, 165 million or 60.2% of Americans aged 12 years or older currently abuse drugs within the last 30 days. Fascinating. There's a lot more to these statistics. You guys should check them out. It's something we should be paying more attention to, how we are dealing with stress and the state of our stress today. All right, so let's get started. Dr. Shokwis is going to start us off with the question of what is an addiction and is it a choice? All right, Dr. Shokwis. You're understanding more about, okay. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, more about the the genetics um, and the um, environmental factors that may contribute to addiction. But ultimately, you know, addiction is a repetitive pattern uh, that's disruptive uh, to our health or social or occupational functioning. So relationships, work, that kind of thing. Um, you know, it's hard to know as far as family background, though, because ultimately, I. I think, again, the more we learn, the more we figure out that it's probably more genetics than anything. I mean, you know, you can have 10 kids in the same household and uh, an alcoholic father and a drug using mother, and maybe half the children end up with a substance uh, use disorder and the other half may spend their lives completely abstinent from substances. So, um, so it, it probably boils down more to genetics than environmental factors, but environmental factors obviously have some input as well. Yeah, so I think that speaks well to like this idea of some people arguing that addiction's a choice. Right. What do you what do you think about that? Well, uh, I think your your propensity toward addiction is not a choice. Mm -hmm. I think ultimately you can make choices to try and reduce your risk for developing an addiction, or once you're in addiction, there may be certain choices that you can make to improve your um, ability to stay clean and sober. But uh, yeah, but ultimately, 
a person does not choose, you know, the receptors in their brain and, you know, the certain pathways in their brain that uh, are stimulated by particular substances. I completely agree. Or behaviors. Right. Why would right. we choose to be, you know, struggling and sometimes compromising our income or relationships with these behaviors? Yeah. So I've heard of this concept of um, some people like that can binge drink or do binges on the weekend. They have a better working memory. So they're not as um, they're not as they don't have as high as a propensity to have an addiction. You know, what is your experience about that? been like that so some people trying a substance they'd be more resilient and resistant to not have any addiction versus others that may not have such as a good what we call frontal lobe or right, impulse right. control right yeah again it it it, uh, it it probably boils down to uh genetic factors and um and again you know people kind of select themselves into certain substances and behaviors. I mean, I ultimately think there is no, uh, you know, addictive personality. A lot of people will say, you know, mm -hmm. and even when they present to me, you know, I have an addictive personality. I think we all have the potential to be uh, addicted to particular behaviors, substances, whatever. And some just happen to be healthier, like you know, ex exercise or reading a book or whatever, but that may be what really motivates a person to, to work or to find free time. And, uh, you know, that label addiction is, yeah, we're kind of getting away from that because ultimately it, it's a, it can kind of be a confusing term. And uh, so, yeah, people kind of select themselves into certain substances based on the reward they're getting in their brain. Um, and, you know, for some people, they can drink alcohol, you know, a couple of beers, a couple of nights a week. And for someone with the wrong uh, brain makeup, you know, they have two beers and that turns into 20 beers. Um, and, um, yeah, I don't know, you know, it's interesting you bring up the, the, the working memory. I don't know if you have any other thoughts on that, but I'm not sure what... Um, well, for example, I think maybe a different way to, to, to ask this question is like, do you see more risk in individuals that have um, mental health conditions that are primary, such as like ADHD, which have a little bit of impulse problems with controlling impulse, com compulsion, um, or personality disorders? You know, if you could speak a little bit more about that, like how some mental health conditions can really affect um, the nature of, of an addiction. Yeah. Um, so definitely mental health disorders, uh, raise a person's risk for substance use and, and probably impulsive behaviors in general, like you said. Um, uh, I, I always tell patients that if they have a mental health condition, such as depression, anxiety, ADHD, whatever it might be, bipolar disorder, their brain is more vulnerable. And mm -hmm. that creates two situations. Number one, it, it does often lead them down a path of uh, substance use disorders because they may tr be trying to correct their condition. You know, they often call that self-medicating. So there's certainly that risk. But then there's also the risk of, you know, further harming your brain 
with repetitive substance use and, and or um, exaggerating your symptoms, whether that be depression or manic-like symptoms or what have you, in response to the substance or the behaviors that the person's engaged in. Mm. Um, so it's yeah, it's kind of a kind of a double whammy for for a lot of people when it comes to yeah, substances and problematic behaviors. Mm-hmm. What has been your experience with some of the environmental pieces that play into having trouble with addiction? Well, <laughs> um, yeah, I think, you know, when we have a good support system, when we have a good uh, solid belief system, something that we're working toward or feel responsible to, um, I think that you know, really does protect us. Um, And so when a lot of those things aren't in place, or when a person feels like uh, sort of they're, they're on their own, um, I I think it does put them at higher risk for uh, substance use disorders. Um, So, you know, ultimately, that can be uh, a way to try and help a person manage an addiction is, is to try and build some of those things into place. And, you know, we can talk about that later, but, um, you know, I think it, you know, can kind of go both ways. Mm-hmm. So being in an environment that has a lot of, you know, people that are using substances can contribute to an increased desire to want to use those substances. Right. So from my experience, I've heard that there's a lot of, it's challenging and what I've seen, I'm not clinically working with a population that has addictions, but I've seen it in my own experience with family and stuff. Um, it's hard to heal. And would you agree with this? It's hard to heal if you're in an environment that's the same around the same people. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Unfortunately, people often have to make really hard choices mm-hmm. um, to, to kind of be in a successful recovery process. Um, And yeah, it can mean giving up friends that they've had for a long time. It could be uh, a relationship that they've been in for a long time or, um, you know, know, family, siblings having not to communicate or interact with each other. Um, So yeah, there there can be some really tough choices in that regard. Because ultimately, yeah, I often, again, talk with people about this, you know, they may have an honest attention to go to a movie with their best friend. But ultimately, mm-hmm. every time they go to that movie with that best friend, it's, you know, what do they do after the movie? And they end up engaging in, you know, problematic behaviors that they've sort of been in a pattern of before. Um, and that probably isn't just about that person being a bad influence. You know, that's certainly possibly part of it. But again, the way our brain lays down memories and associates those rewards with certain people and certain places uh, that can all contribute to continuing struggle with um, addictive behaviors. Okay. So what about like stress, stressors at the job, sleep deprivation, um, income, how are those impact those, the the social stresses impacting um, the recovery process? Well, uh, you know, I don't know if (laughs) it's probably not the answer people kind of assume. I, uh, in my practice, I see, uh, all kinds of people across 
different socioeconomic um, groups, uh, different occupations. Um, I, so I don't, I think a lot of the times some of those factors really don't, you know, contribute a whole lot because even when a, when a person has a lot of financial resources to try and promote recovery, you know, maybe they can afford 12 rehabs, but that person still ends up using at the end of those 12 rehabs. Mm, I'm glad we brought this up. That is the fascinating part about this, which I shows know. that the, the genetic nature of this, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Does, it, does that discriminate? Uh, uh, do you think age has a, a factor there? Like, you know, younger people having a little bit more time to grow and be resilient versus an older person, maybe not so yeah, so that that's a great question because ultimately, I think younger people can get away with. Yeah, I mean, you know, obviously, a twenty-two-year-old um, can party for four days straight and still theoretically work and function, um, and so there is a certain resilience there compared to somebody that's fifty-two. Um, so you know that that's a factor, but uh, you know one of the unfortunate things is, you know, a lot of younger people, of course, are going to be more engaged in experimentation with substances. um, And again, based on their genetic influences may uh, become addicted at a fairly young age. And that can be very uh, detrimental to their developing brain. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, utilizing substances that are mimicking or essentially taking the place of more natural substances. And so the brain, yeah, kind of gets lazy, maybe doesn't develop certain pathways Mm. that are important uh, Mm -hmm. in later life. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and yeah, and then kind of uh, fouling up receptor development for certain uh, substances that are naturally occurring in our brain. So so yeah, uh, it's, there's there's the resiliency factor, but then there's also the, you know, the potential long term harm done to the developing brain. So would you say that like a 16 year old that tries marijuana or you know starts to drink has more risk of developing an addiction or or harder recovery? Have you seen that? Well, I think I, I think again it gets down to the genetics. Mm-hmm. Um, but ultimately, then I think the younger you are, the more entrenched mm-hmm. uh, an addiction can become. I mean, I think there there is sort of a, a tipping point where a young person, you know, if they make the choice early, can get a way in out of it and realize, hey, this is going to become a problem. Um, but I think once, you know, once it kind of starts to snowball, uh, and I, I am seeing a lot of uh, this with marijuana use, particularly mm-hmm. in younger males, mm-hmm. where they're kind of assuming because it's been legal in Washington since 2012, 10, almost 10 years ago now. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there's a certain acceptability now that wasn't there before. And so I think more young people are willing to, to try it. And I think there's households where, yeah kids grow up seeing their parents using and so again find it more acceptable and um and so yeah I think I think it can become more easily 
like I said, in, entrenched uh, in a younger person than say, you know, a 35 year old that tries marijuana for the first time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm curious to know a little bit more about like the younger population of guys using marijuana. What kind of things are you seeing them struggle with? Well, I mean, I think, it, you know, it, it kind of is the classic stereotype. I think there's a lot of young people that uh, end up kind of stuck at home um, because they uh, develop a, you know, a motivational syndrome. They just don't have the drive or the desire um, to, to try and, you know, sort of develop a, you know, an occupational interest or academic interest. They're kind of complacent and, and willing to just kind of stay home, uh, particularly just because of the comforts of home. I think uh, a lot of young people that use substances, they, they actually diminish their ability to tolerate frustration, which ultimately causes them to you know, lack the ability to be more socially engaged, you know, take some risks to find you know, particular jobs or uh, try and get into school. Um, so, uh, yeah, there's, and, and then ultimately, you know, probably mood and anxiety disorders, you know, there's, they probably maybe already have some genetic propensity toward, uh, depression or anxiety. And then, uh, the marijuana may have, you know, some pretty significant negative influence on, um, you know, exaggerating those conditions. Hmm. You know, what's so interesting. I want to just bring this out again, because, you're just, you're speaking to, I think there's this, there's a big personality and again, the, the genetic component to this, because I know many highly responsible and um, active people that, that are recreational users of marijuana, right? Like, sure. And, you know, but it doesn't stop them from being, you know, being motivated and, and moving forward and working hard. But with some, you know, it actually calms them down a little bit. Um, or sometimes they say they are more creative. So it's just it's just fascinating because it's not just it's not just the substance; it's the person. Well, yeah, and I can tell you, uh, uh, you bring up a good point because ultimately, like for example, anxiety. I think there are a lot of people that do self-medicate for anxiety with marijuana, but ultimately it becomes. <laughs> Yeah, well, yeah. for sure. Yeah, exactly. And so, and, and they kind of work in the same way in that uh, anxiety tends to actually get worse when they're not using. So maybe a person does work during the day, then they go home and they drink alcohol or smoke marijuana and they don't see any um, problem with doing that. And they say, well, you know, it helps me calm down at the end of the day. It helps me sleep. It helps me relax. But what happens over time is ultimately, and again, this is all, you know, probably based in uh, the receptors in our brain, you know, the brain starts to rely on those substances. And so what a lot of those people will notice is, you know, as the day progresses, their sense of stress, their sense of anxiety, those things start to build and they get more irritable and short tempered and and it really isn't probably an underlying condition they have anymore. And it's not that their life stinks or their job stinks or whatever. It's that their brain is 
starting to hunger for that substance. And, and the, the signal for that is that anxiety, that irritability, that sense of stress. You know, it's, it's all a perceptual thing created by the brain that then prompts the use again. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I, just to kind of piggyback on uh, the question, um, I ultimately think recreational marijuana use is fine. I mean, ultimately, I think it's just as safe and maybe even safer than alcohol mm-hmm. when you look at the long-term health effects. Again, I think they're related in um, contributing to some mood disorders and anxiety disorders, or at least uh, exacerbating those conditions. Um, but yeah, I think it's, it's probably not, it's not as dangerous as some people might imagine. And so, like you said, I think if a person is responsibly using, um, and it's not impairing them socially or occupationally and, um, and, you know, it's not an excessively frequent use of the substance. I, I think it's, like I said, as probably as safe as alcohol or safer. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. that's really interesting to think about. Thanks for distinguishing that point there, kind of the boundaries of sure. what, what contributes to the path of addiction versus just recreational use. Right. Uh, right. Because a lot of times these are, these are coping strategies we use for ma- they're maladaptive. They ultimately are maladaptive, but they're for a lot of us coping strategies of dealing with things that we may not know how to deal with. I mean, there's this, mm-hmm. so let's talk a little bit about that. Like these, this, some of the skills, some of the, um, you know, different defenses we have with denial and sublimation and um, repression, suppression. I think it's important to kind of understand our denial, our, our defense mechanisms and how that plays into right. um, and, and plays into our behavior. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, uh, again, it's all kind of part of the strategy of how uh, our brain operates and drives our behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if we can uh, stay in a long-term state of denial about how a substance or behavior is impacting our lives, mm-hmm. obviously it allows us to continue using that substance and, and getting the rewards that the brain might be looking for in that substance. And ultimately, um, you know, again, these substances kind of uh, uh, hijack uh, some of our brain, you know, uh, nervous system pathways. Mm-hmm. Um, and so ultimately people do become physically dependent as well as psychologically dependent in the sense of, you know, they, if they don't use that substance, they cannot function. So, you know, particularly like, uh, opiate addiction, you know, there's, there's not only the fear of withdrawal, but ultimately a lot of people get to the point where they're not even really getting any enjoyment out of the substance. They're not getting a high from it because they'd have to use such a high amount to get that. Mm -hmm. But what they do need to do is kind of basically use a maintenance dose, you know, a certain amount of that drug to even function normally. Uh, And that's how powerful some of these drugs are uh, in in the way that they impact our brain. Mm. And so, so again, you know, from sort of the psychological uh, slant, uh, you know, all those things you talk about as far as, um, 
you know, denial and, and rationalization and all these things that we use. Uh, again, that's just kind of some, some trickery by the brain to keep, keep that substance coming and staying in our lives. The trickery of the mind. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Even us sober people have to deal with all our biases. Right. right, right. Well, okay. So how big of an impact do you think that, you know, so let's talk about conditioning. We know that what we grow up in, how we see our parents really, or our parents neglect, whatever, um, will shape us, shapes us a lot in our behavior and our choices. And, you know, how much do you think, how much do you think that plays into resilient? I want to say this. I don't want to say this. I'm thinking on my feet here about this. Okay. How much do you think emotional elation and regulation plays into addiction? Yeah, no, I think that's a great question. Um, well, again, I think that, that, that there's sort of our natural tendencies, uh, you know, where a person, again, is going to have a greater natural ability, natural ability to tolerate frustration, or, you know, to take on bigger and more risk taking type things. And so um, I think ultimately a lot of people that do develop substance use disorders, again, or, and, and we can include gambling and sex addiction and all these kind of things as well, whatever the behavior is, right? Um, it's, it's often a way to manage negative emotions. Mm-hmm. And maybe, you know, the environmental aspect of that is yeah, they didn't develop in a household where, you know, crying was acceptable or being angry was acceptable, or maybe anger was too acceptable. And that person wants to avoid that at all costs during adulthood. And the the way they feel that they can manage that is, yeah, by using a, a downer, you know, marijuana, alcohol, what have you to try and sort of control that tendency to, to get angry or, you know, use a substance to prevent a sense of sadness, uh, you know, to, to kind of feel like, hey, I need to, you know, toughen up so that this situation doesn't make me sad because, you know, my childhood upbringing teaches me, you know, being sad is a sign of weakness or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, so I think, I think people definitely, you know, develop certain habits and behaviors based on sort of their natural, you know, tendencies toward tolerating frustration or not. So negative emotion. Now the question becomes, can an adult learn how to deal with negative emotion that's different than how they've learned in their childhood? I think so. Uh, It's hard. Um, I think, you know, one of the, probably the biggest developments in therapy in in the last couple of decades is um, dialectical behavioral therapy, mm-hmm. um, which really is kind of grounded in mindfulness and um, really trying to understand, yeah, sort of our perception of emotions, how our behaviors and emotions might affect other people. And that may be different from what that person believes their emotions and behaviors do to other people. And so it's, it's all about sort of relearning that. And so, you know, ultimately, if a person is dedicated mm-hmm. to doing a structured therapy, 
like dialectical behavioral therapy, I think the change can be made. Um, but yeah, you know, going to a therapist and telling all your childhood stories, that's not going to make any change. <laughs> no, you got to apply it. Yeah. Right. So I'm curious in your population of people, are you seeing, um, you know, are you seeing people still inactive or out of active addiction or a little bit? Uh, of Both. Yeah, okay. for sure. Both. What do you, so what are some of the large contributors and kind of a timeline too? Like, is it a lifelong journey? to a person that's on the path of success in, in changing and staying sober? Yeah, uh, for sure. Because again, if, if we kind of look at the genetic or hereditary model, you know, mm -hmm. that uh, just tells us that that person, you know, regardless of what period of time they are in their life, there's, there's that risk. Um, but you know, I certainly in both my professional experience and my personal experience with the people I know, um, you know, the longer they're away from that problematic behavior or substance, mm -hmm. you know, I think the easier it does get. I, th I think there's still work that needs to be done at times. But um, yeah, I think I think people get to a certain point where, yeah, they really do lose any interest or drive uh, to, to, again, use a particular substance or engage in a particular behavior. And so, you know, there are a lot of success stories or a lot of, you know, long-term uh, recovery successes. Um, but yeah, it, and, and some of it's luck. Let's face it. Sometimes people just kind of make the right choices at the right time and can kind of carry that forward. Okay. I want to know, so like, can we talk a little bit about the journey of getting there? So person's decided I'm, I'm ready to change. I'm done with the drugs. I'm, and they have actually, you know, went through rehab where they're biologically out of um, withdrawal and now in the path of recovery. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe you could you share a couple patient scenarios that you've seen, what they are doing, what they've had to um, let go of, do to get there? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, well, so, you know, I, like this, when it comes down to relationships, we kind of talked about that before, uh, you know, if a person, uh, you know, a lot of particularly when it comes to substance use disorders, I think, you know, like-minded people tend to attract. And so I, th I think there are a lot of people that, you know, struggle, struggle mutually with, you know, alcohol use or marijuana use or, you know, whatever the case may be. And so, uh, you know, uh, that partner can be uh, very helpful Mm -hmm. in the recovery process, or they can be very detrimental in the recovery process. Um, and so that's, again, where, where people are faced with hard choices. And, 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 and hopefully, you know, if you have a very supportive and loving partner, you know, you guys can mutually decide, hey, you know, we're going to make our best effort at doing this, whether it's for us or the family as a whole, or whatever it might be. And, and help each other and support each other through that process. And obviously that can be very helpful. And I, you know, I do have a, a couple that have kind of made their way out of opiate addiction mm -hmm. together. Wow. Um, yeah. But then, you know, they've struggled off and on with 
alcohol use and and even just nicotine use um, and marijuana use. And so, you know, their journey is certainly not over, but I think they've been very successful in creating a more stable environment for themselves and their children and, you know, um, really making their best effort in, in staying clean and sober and learning what that means and, and how beneficial that can be and how challenging that can be at times. So this couple you're mentioning, they had both had a opiate addiction yep. and they're still together and now they're just struggling with the nuances of other substances. Yeah. Yeah. And again, you know, and again, they've had successful periods where, you know, they didn't drink, you know, and, and, and saw the benefit of that, but then, mm-hmm. you know, some stressor comes along and they kind of lean again on that substance. And unfortunately kind of get back in a, in a pattern that, you know, maybe not as problematic, but, you know, still is probably impairing them in some way. Um, but yeah, the, it, uh, but it, it does kind of get to your point of, you know, the, the lifelong nature of it. it. It just doesn't, doesn't disappear. I'm so curious about this. So in this couple, do you see both of them? Uh, yes. Okay. Uh-huh. Okay. So this is so cool. What are they doing to be together? Are they like, what's their communication style like? Mm. Well, uh, yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I think, I mean, just from a dynamic standpoint, I think the woman is a little bit more outgoing and uh, creative and dominant in the relationship. Mm -hmm. So there may be, you know, some, some benefit to that for them. Um, I think the, the guy is a little bit more quiet and probably kind of relies on her to, to, to get a sense of direction at times. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but I, I think, you know, they have, they have a lot of life experience, obviously quite a f- few negative experiences uh, and, you know, and they can kind of share in that and kind of, respect each other for the, for getting through those challenges. And um, uh, yeah, I think they're both, I I think they're, you know, just actually very good communicators. Ah, Uh, Fundamental for any relationship to stay together, because whether you have an addiction or not, relationships are struggling to stay together anyway. So communication is so important. It's just, to me, it's fascinating because you brought up a um, before I went to medical school, naturopathic medical school, I, I was in the service industry bartending and, you know, I got to see a lot of different working in hospitality. You see some of the most right. interesting things because people can get really drunk and right. go up to their hotel. And then you get to see the same people come down for like a week. And so you right. get to know, you know, someone right. from a different area. I had this couple that would come visit me and they were functional drunks. And let me tell you, they had the best relationship because they both trusted each other they didn't talk in any way of contempt or betrayal um but they had severe like dependencies their life was around the experience and drinking together but it's just like you 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 don't see it's just i think that speaks a lot to resiliency but the key piece there is communication and respect towards you know having that ability to mutually respect knowing how to not you know, cause autonomic contempt between each other and separation. Right. Absolutely. And, and it does, yeah, that, 
I think kind of gets to the idea of a shared experience. You know, as soon as you start hiding aspects of the way you're living your life, mm-hmm. you know, that can obviously you know, be, be damaging to the relationship. And so, you know, even if this couple maybe does party a little bit too much, at least mm-hmm. it's a shared experience. They're not hiding that aspect of their personalities. Um, and so it works. And, and again, I think it's similar to the, the couple I was describing. They're just, they're, they're not hiding things from each other. They're honest. It's almost and, like, you know, cause you can see in different personalities like orthorexia. So when I was in clinical practice, I was working with a lot of, um, professional athletes and they come to see me for like hormones and stuff. And we'd have to talk yeah. about the abuse of that and all that kind of stuff. And, but you'd see couples come in and they're both addicted to working out addicted to food and they again like it's like they were relating on a shared experience but that communication is so important Mm -hmm. yeah absolutely so let's talk a little bit more about what you've seen with hiding you said hiding what does that do obviously i know but i want to know if you could explain what does that do for trust in um, between two people yeah Well, so, you know, number one, uh, trying to keep secrets or hide things is a lot of hard work. And so it, it puts a strain on the person that's trying to do that. And mm-hmm. it's going to affect their behavior. Um, and they're always going to be on yeah, kind of that suspicious high alert of, you know, what's the other person going to try and do or ask me? Um, or what am I going to maybe slip up on that they're going to notice? Um, and so, you know, that there's just that, um, that aspect for, for the person that is doing the hiding. And then, you know, for the person that's sort of on the other end of that, uh, you know, they probably get some sense that, yeah, I'm not getting, getting the whole story here. And so that, kind of taps into their insecurity and suspicion and uh, yeah, it's going to affect the way they feel about the other person. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, uh, uh, you could probably do a whole, you know, other program on, on the dynamics that this can create and the problems. Um, but, you know, the, the downside when we're talking about um, an addiction or, you know, substance use disorder, what have you, is that if you're hiding aspects of that, then you don't have that person to help you and support you and, and have an opportunity to, to show some empathy and some su- support. Um, and so it, it actually becomes more challenging for that person if they do decide, hey, I, you know, I'm actually having some trouble here and want to get out of this. Mm. This makes me think of this question of like, how much of this is insight and the person really being aware of them hiding versus them maliciously knowing and, and hiding. How, you know, do you know what I'm asking here? Well, I mean, I think, yeah, what you said is sort of the, the summary of it. I mean, you know, ultimately, um, you know, uh, I don't remember necessarily the, the, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, according to Gottman, but, yeah. you know, uh, resentment and contempt are, mm-hmm. you know, two of them for sure. Mm-hmm. And, and those again, do come out of that 
that dyna dynamic, that kind of inability to no longer trust, that kind of elevated state of suspicion, um, and maybe you know the other party not being able to give fully of themselves and um, mm, kind of cool. feeling guilty and upset about that in some way. Yeah. So what's driving the suspicion? Is it trauma or is it hiding? I think that's really something important to distinguish because I notice, like in my relationship coaching, people sometimes default to like thinking the person's hiding, but sometimes it's like, you don't know if it's trauma related or not. Right. Absolutely. Right. Yep. Yep. Yeah. No. And I've certainly had um, friendships or relationships where, you know, I am completely at ease with somebody. I feel like, you know, they're open and honest and trustworthy and maybe I can talk to them about anything. Mm -hmm. And then I have friends that, you know, have sort of been burned on that where, you know, their level of suspicion or lack of trust, you know, sort of questions, you know, your intentions of why you might even be talking about a certain thing or doing a certain thing. And so, um, yeah, I don't know if this gets to your question, but, uh, you know, again, I, I think the point is that that person probably has had experiences in their life that, yeah, have created more suspicion of other people, you know, a lack of trust in general of other people kind of, you know, it's almost like, you know, being a police detective for 25 years, it's hard not to be suspicious of people. <laughs> uh, that's why some of us are single. <laughs> right. Where, yeah. No, I think that's so important to know though, like, what has been your experience? Why do you have that suspicion? Is it what's the underlying driver, right? And it takes time to know that with a person. Mm -hmm. but it, in any sort of relationship, it's like you gotta, you have to at least trust, but not to the point you have to have some amount of trust to start a relationship, a new one, especially, but not to the point of like where you're not seeing the whole picture. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. To your detriment. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So going back to substances, um, on the path of recovery, let's talk a little bit more about some successful relationships you've seen. So, uh, how long has share with me a case of an individual that you've seen? How long did it take for them to start to get into a place where they're growing out of previous patterns? Mm. Um, I don't know. That's a tough question. Um, I'm trying to kind of trying to think of somebody in particular. Um, well, does the substance matter? So like sex addiction, addiction, is it the same as cocaine or alcohol? Right. Yeah. Right. Um, well, yeah, I think, um, so something like, a um, yeah, it's interesting. I think some of the, some of the seemingly more ingrained substances uh, our behaviors within our culture are the hardest ones to to get over because I, I think you know part of that is a certain acceptance of that so you know drinking uh -huh. your, again mm -hmm. yeah um, more recently the marijuana mm -hmm. uh, you know there, there's a, a culture acceptance to that and so it probably is easier to um, sort of stay enmeshed in that process where yeah if somebody's uh you know a, a club partier and is doing a lot of cocaine and party drugs uh, I think ultimately if they get in a 
a solid relationship um, and, you know, feel ready to get out of that scene. I, th I think that's probably going to be easier. So um, what are you saying? So someone that, that like might have, sorry for interrupting you, but I have to ask this question. So yeah. someone that's at a club that's interested in, in, in um, cocaine, a person that they meet could have the potential for them to want to recover. I think so. Love well, I mean, can do that I, healing. I, <laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think we all have to have the carrot, you know, dangling out in front of us, and and you know whatever that is. But I think, yeah, I think that uh, well, and uh, I think there's a good movie that kind of relates to this, Punch Drunk Love, um, with Ryan Gosling and. Uh, and I'm trying is to that Sandler? That. Is that Adam Sandler in there? No, uh -uh. unless I'm thinking of the wrong. I think it's Punch Drunk Love. I don't know, but it's got um, Steve Carell and Ryan Gosling. And Ryan Gosling's a party guy and womanizer, and he ends up meeting the oh. daughter of um, Steve Carell. Mm. And uh, yeah, I th it's an excellent movie, so I would strongly recommend it. <laughs> okay. Um, because I think it does speak a certain to a certain degree of yeah relationships addiction, uh, sort of you know the motivation that drives people. Mm. Um, mm -hmm. um, so yeah, so worth a watch. Yeah, I th I'm totally a big proponent of love. It can be very healing to right. any individual. Uh, it's just the path to get there, and what you might have to undo in your mind, what you're telling yourself from your experiences. Yeah. And I think, well, just to sort of um, piggyback on that, I think, you know, again, the substances also though, um, you know, they, they can have influences on relationships uh, mm. based on the nature of, of the drug. Mm -hmm. So, you know, something like heroin or cocaine or meth, um, I think they create, uh, you know, a pretty strong state of being self-focused um you know and, and particularly something like a stimulant you know probably creates this sense of self-importance and so it probably diminishes one's ability to really engage fully in a relationship um oh wow whereas yeah i think you know probably things like alcohol marijuana you know even mdma and things like that you know there's there's a social enhancement component of those things, not, you know, a hundred percent, but at least I think, you know, there are certain substances that sort of bring us inward and there are certain substances that kind of put us oh. more outward and mm -hmm. kind of appreciating other people wanting to be around other people versus wanting to sort of isolate. And again, that can vary across the board of the substances, but and, and the impact it has on that person or how entrenched they are in it. But, you know, sort of on the surface, you know, the average way a drug affects a person, there's, there's some big differences there. Oh, I think that's such an important nuance. It's like, so like serotonin pathways and dopaminergic pathways and epinephrine pathways. It is so fascinating to think about how a stimulant can create more self-focus and how like, you know, I'm thinking even psychedelics and like MDMA. Right. And, that open up to that, you know, connection and the desire for touch and a lot of the senses. It's fascinating. Right. It's fascinating. Right. All of them affect different 
areas in the brain, but still like a general mechanism, right? So like there's this loss of control. Yeah. Inhibition. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. And again, there's, yeah, you know, uh, like you said, you know, the, the desire for touch and things, there's a, there's a sensuality to, you know, even marijuana, you know, to, to, you know, to sort of experience certain uh, sensations and experiences. Um, whereas, yeah, again, something like heroin, you know, really kind of ends up resulting in a person sort of just relaxing and, and enjoying their own euphoria and not really, you know, yeah, experiencing anything with other people, you know, for the most part. Yeah. And I'm just thinking like cocaine and stimulants can increase paranoia, focus, right. Um, determination, power, aggression, because that's playing into epinephrine and depends Mm -hmm. on the the biochemistry of the person's, you know, pathway there. Some people will have a propensity to be aggressive. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and yeah. And like, yeah, kind of risk-taking, you know, I, I think again, because of that, false sense of confidence I think there's a lot of risk taking with the stimulants and 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 it's well I mean I think there's some decreased inhibition but again I think it really is more kind of the the confidence and grandiosity that might Mm -hmm. incur from the substance but you know whereas alcohol um yeah it's just decreased inhibition might put a person at risk for problematic behaviors Mm. Yeah. And that's, I think that's so important. Well, if you could give me some interesting, like, what are some pearls takeaways for individuals that are on the recovery path? Like, how long do you think it, you know, one should give themselves to, you know, like um, this idea of successful dating, right? Successfully being in relationships that are healthier and loving and more successful. Well, so I, maybe the the pearl here that I often talk with my patients about is mm-hmm. emotions win win out over logic almost every time. And and what I mean by that is, you know, the 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 primitive parts of our brain often override, you know, the more advanced logical parts of our brain. Because um, we know, you know, if we're excessively using alcohol and it's having a negative impact on people around us and our ability to function you know there's a certain logic and understanding that i need to stop this but again that that primitive part of our brain um yeah just it just can really overpower any any effort at logic or reasoning and i think you know the same can go you know with regard to uh you know relationships you know if if we get a certain sense of something going wrong in a relationship even if someone points out uh the potential reality of what's going on and the logic and reasoning of it you know if that person is stuck in an emotional state about mm-hmm. that situation it's it you really can't override it or reason with it um, and so when I tend to talk about that with people is sort of the mitigating risk and kind of saying, you know, what it looks like you need to do is 
get out of this pattern that leads you to that problematic behavior. And it's not, it's not in that moment, you know, of having a drink in front of you or an attractive person in front of you or whatever. It's, it's three steps back, right? Mm -hmm. What can I do to avoid getting into a situation where my emotional, more primitive part of me is going to override that logical part of me. Mm. This is so true, right? It's like Antonio Damasio's work says feelings travel faster than thought. And right. so it's understanding those emotions, right? Like that are driving us. Right. Um, like for me, I don't put any sort of sweets in my house because I'm <laughs> going to eat them. Right. right. So it's like what you put in front of you, <laughs> you got to think it's so that forward thinking, um, which you're suggesting by what I'm hearing, that can be something somebody can learn. Right. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And actually, um, you know, if, if people are interested in, you know, brain science and, and behavioral science and, and that, mm-hmm. uh, you know, obviously, in addition to what you're trying to do here, there's uh, a podcast called Hidden Brain. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, on an episode or even a couple of episodes I've uh, listened to there, yeah, they talk about a hot and cold brain state. And it really is kind of getting to what we're talking about. You know, if we're in a particular situation where emotions are high, you know, either, you know, whether that's elation or fear or anxiety or whatever, that is what they would consider a hot state. And it, and it, and it has a certain impact on the way that we can think in that moment. Whereas two days before or two days after in this quote unquote cold state, a person can kind of say, I would never do this. And then two days later, do it in that hot state. Mm -hmm. Or after something's happened two days later, say, I can't believe I did that because (laughs) A, B, and C, right? So that's a reflection of how our brain can operate in different ways under different circumstances. Yeah. So what you're saying is decisions are, we can have a different decision-making process when our emotions are in a hot state versus a cold state. So it's like, when I think about sales, for example, it's like buyer's remorse versus like you go to a car, you go and buy a car, for example, when it's probably way out of your budget or something, you know, you like it. There's something you like about the, why did you buy the car? Why did you buy the car? Especially if it was out of your your means and um, the next couple of days you're having buyer's remorse, right? So right. it's what plays right. into that decisional capacity. And I think that's the, the nature of human minds is like the difference in the ability. Like I call it the vulnerability meter. So that's right. like how much pressure is in your life, but how resilient is your mind um, and how much control, you know, like for example, you, I'm sure you know this, like a person that has like OCD, is different or personality of like very controlled in some ways, but compulsive in others, like they can be rigid, but then there's some people that are just not, they just do whatever. Right. Right. So what is that about? Like, (laughs) (laughs) well, again, I, I think that's a very complicated question, but I think, Mm -hmm. yeah, there's, you know, from a psychological perspective, yeah, there's just certain, right, defense mechanisms, patterns of behavior that are reinforced over time, all kinds of things going on there. Um, And then you can get into, you know, 
receptor um, influences and genetics and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, ultimately, I think you know the interesting thing to tie this kind of all together is that yeah, there are certain people that obviously um, are more enjoyable to be around after they've had a couple of drinks versus <laughs> when they haven't, right? And and it really does allow them to kind of get out of that maybe socially anxious state, that mm-hmm. sort of overly defensive state and and kind of open up to really what, you know, they probably could be more like if, yeah, they are regularly around people they trust or went through a course of therapy to learn more about what's going on and how they can change it. But, you know, the easy, the easy fix is have a couple of drinks and be a much more uh, fun and interesting person than they were, you know, before. <laughs> That's so true. Well, Dr. Schoquistler, where can we find you? Well, uh, I do have a website, uh, www.delphipsychiatry.com, D-E-L-P-H-I psychiatry, one word. Um, and then, uh, yeah, I think, you know, Googling me, you'll find my phone number. Um, but I have a private practice in Gig Harbor, Washington, mm-hmm. um, and nice, uh, comfortable environment to come figure out uh, how to maybe live a more uh, satisfying and rewarding life. And what makes you different? Are you are you doing? Um, you do things a little different, from my understanding. You're not just primarily drug based, right? Yeah, I uh, I do. Um, I, I, basically I kind of set aside more time. Uh, I think than a lot of providers as far as, you know, particularly in the intake, mm-hmm. uh, really trying to get to know a person, understand what's going on, what all the factors are that go into what, what their problem might be. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, yeah, kind of discuss potential options, you know, whether that be medication based or, uh, more therapy, pay, uh, therapy based, um, Mm-hmm. So I'm I'm kind of willing to do to do anything that uh, you know people people need to get better. And again, I really do focus on you know, trying to figure out what what the person is trying to achieve in coming to me. You know, are they trying to change careers and they don't think they can do it with the things they're dealing with now, or do they want to improve a relationship? Do they just want to you know, feel better in general because they've suffered for a long period of time, you know, whatever the case may be. But, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, hopefully there's, there's some kind of observable outcome, not just the sense of, oh, you know, I'm happier or not depressed. You know, what does that mean for you? Right. What does that mean? Yeah. So are you still open for taking new patients? Yep. Absolutely. Awesome. Yep. Awesome. yep. Well, thank you so much for your time. Absolutely. And this educational experience. Yep. Yeah, sounds good. Love the name of your podcast. It's very (laughs) cerebral. (laughs) Thank you so much.